Well, about a year ago, some friends that we knew had a 25-year-old boat that they never used, and they said, do you want it? And I said, no. And my wife said, yes. And guess who won that fight? And yet, last week, on a Monday, anybody know what happened? We had a little bit of a storm around here, didn't we? And I want to tell you where that boat went to. The bottom of Lake Hickory. No, I'm serious. It really did. And so this past two weeks has been a challenge of trying to figure out what do you do when your boat sinks to the bottom of Lake Hickory and you didn't want it anyway? Because part of you is like, can we leave it there? And then no, it's tied to someone's dock and it's going to pull their dock down. And so anyway, long story short, many, many hundreds of dollars later, our boat is in the landfill. I'm not kidding. Because I want to tell you something. When you resurrect a boat that's 25 years old from the bottom of Lake Hickory, that junk is not the same. It is not the same. People will begin to tell you, oh, you could fix it. No, hold on. Let me, let me, let me get the accent right. Oh, you could fix it, but them electronics ain't never going to be the same. And we got to figure out if you got water in your gas tank. And I was like, how much does this cost to get taken to the landfill? And that's what we did. Resurrection, in Jesus' terms... And in the Bible terms, are not the same. Because when we are resurrected, we are resurrected to glory. Those who are in Christ, just like Christ's resurrection is glorious and to the Father as well. And so Paul gets this place where he says, you know why? You know why I'm here? Because the resurrection and I believe in it. So how do we get here? Because I know we just kind of parachuted in to, to Acts chapter 24. So let's go back and do a quick recap. I'll get you through from Acts 21, 22, and 23. Now, in Acts 21, Paul finally makes it to Jerusalem. And as he makes it to Jerusalem, Asian Jews, which is a strange term, um, think of people from Tur- Jews from Turkey, show up. And they form a mob, and this mob foments a riot. And Paul is taken out into the square, and he's beaten. And the Romans show up, and the Romans arrest Paul. At the very end of Acts chapter 21 and into the beginning of Acts chapter 21, they, 22, they permit him to adjust the crowd. And so he begins to address the crowd and talk to them about who he is, what he's doing, talks to them about Jesus, and they're quiet and they listen. And they're quiet until he gets to the place where he says, and the Lord has appointed me to take this good news to the Gentiles. And immediately it just breaks the peace. They go back into a riot again, and the Romans spirit him away, lest he not be killed by the mob, so that they can whip him, which is crazy. But they take him away, and as he's being taken away to get ready to be whipped for causing this riot, so they believe, he says, hey, now listen, would you whip a Roman, I mean, would you whip a Roman, Roman citizen? And the commander of the guard says, well, I'm a Roman citizen too, but I bought my citizenship and it cost me dearly. And Paul reveals to them, yeah, 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 I'm a citizen by birth, which causes them to pause and freak out. Acts chapter 23 then comes along. And so Paul then is sent from the Romans to the Jewish high council, and something kind of interesting happens. So Paul begins to talk to them, and the high priest orders that Paul be slapped. And then says that after he was slapped, Paul says, is that any way for the uh, high priest to act? And then he says, you know, well, that, 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 no, he says, are you going to slap me like that? And, and they say, well, how you dare you talk to the high priest that way? And he says, oh, I didn't know it was the high priest. The Bible doesn't do a great job of capturing sarcasm. So sarcastically, he's basically saying, oh, yeah, you're the high priest. You're really acting like one. And so he appeals then to the resurrection as he speaks to them. And he says, I'm here, and you're here with you because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that immediately breaks off the Sanhedrin because the Sadducees believed there was no resurrection of the dead, and the Pharisees believed in it. And so immediately there's this internal fighting. 
And so a death pact then occurs among another set of Jews. And they say, we're not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. And I'm assuming those people are dead because the Romans came and took him. So they, I don't think they got to eat, and they're not going to be any match for the 200 Roman soldiers that are then now spiriting Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea Maritima. Now, Caesarea Maritima is on the coast. There's two Caesareas. There's Caesarea Philippi, which is up north. That's the place where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Caesarea Maritima is on the coast. Now, think about this. Why would Caesarea Maritima be on the coast? Number one, it's a place that's you know, able to receive goods and services through the Mediterranean Sea, greet dignitaries connected to the Roman, um, you know, pantheon of all of the places and cities where they are. But also, too, if you could ask Roy Cooper, who is the governor right now, would you rather have the governor's mansion there in Raleigh or Wrightsville Beach? Or the top of Grandfather Mountain. He'd probably say one of the two. Similarly there, they're going to take it and put it in the most beautiful spot, and that's where you find Felix. And so we've been to this place before. Those of us that went to Israel this past time, we've literally been to this spot. And it's one of the very few beachfront jails in the world, I think. Um, you know, if you got to go to the beach and got to go to the jail, go to the jail beach here. You know, and so Paul is right there. And so we start with that chapter 24, and I'm going to get you through it quickly so Kevin can come. So Governor Felix is there in Caesarea Maritima, and it says that Tertullus begins to present a case against him. Tertullus was historically known outside of the Bible as being a lawyer that was on retainer, and it happened to be on retainer from the Sanhedrin as well. So in verses 2 through 9, this is Tertullus's speech, and it is nothing more than a syrupy, sweet flattery of Felix, just like you would hear in the most, you know, Jackie Childs, Seinfeld, lawyer kind of kind of way. I'm going to butter up, and I'm going to flatter Felix, and then we're going to get our way. And then Paul gets his turn starting in verse 10. So verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 are Paul's turn. And Paul begins by refuting every single charge, and he challenges the validity of the testimony that has been brought against him. He shows how they actually have no proof by just simply saying, you could check with anybody, here's what I was doing publicly. So verses 14, 15, and 16. You think then that it's maybe just this part where he is coming down and just saying, here's what I believe. But I think Paul is actually building common ground with the Sanhedrin. So he says, listen, I'm going to demonstrate to you all the things that I believe. I'm going to talk to you about what I believe is coming through all the things in the Old Testament, coming up to the validity of Christ. And Paul says, I believe it all. I believe it all. I believe the law. I believe the history. I believe all the prophecy. I believe it all, and I've staked my life on it, and I've lived by it. Check with anyone. Then verses 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, he then begins to summarize. He says, listen, okay, here's what I've been up to. I'm innocent of all these charges, and this is what I've been doing for several years, and now here I've wound back up in Jerusalem. And so he says this, I did, however, yeah, cause that uproar. I'll admit to that. I said, yeah, I'm here for my belief in the resurrection of the dead. And yeah, okay, that's what I did. My faith in the resurrection is is why I'm here. So there's that. So verses 22 and 23 are a little bit perplexing because it says, Felix, who is very familiar with the way. So there are ways to be familiar with something but know nothing about it. If I asked you about food line right now, you'd go, yeah, the sign is blue and yellow. 
They have these MVP cards. But ask, if I ask you what aisle the soft drinks are on, you probably couldn't tell me. There are ways that we know th- about things, but we might not know much of the details. So it's perplexing because he might have known some about it, but he might have also only picked and choose about what he knew. And so then in verse 24, we have Tartullus, we have the Sanhedrin, we have Paul, we have Felix, and now we get introduced to another character, and her name is Drusilla. Drusilla just happens to be Felix's third wife. How did he get three wives, by the way? All right, that's another story for later on. But the quick part of it was Drusilla actually happened to be married already to a man named King Azizus of Amaza, which is a little bit north of where they are. And the story goes that Felix seduced her away from him and became her, his third wife. And so now the two of them, she's Jewish, sit down in front of the second greatest evangelist in the world and listen to the gospel. Verse 25 comes to this part where we talk about a little before in 21 that Felix was somehow, or 23, that he was familiar with the way. Well, Paul begins to talk to him and begins to talk to him about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix is so unfamiliar that this frightens him so much to the point where he sends him away. And you could see someone in this Epicurean lifestyle of eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow we die and it doesn't matter. Get whatever joy you can in this body because after that, that's it. Paul says, no, no, no. There's going to be a resurrection and there's going to be a judgment. And that frightens the man that has all power over Paul so much that he sends Paul away. And then verses 26 and 27, Paul preaches. Felix then defers any kind of decision to make about the gospel. And like a train stopping just with the squealing wheels, so stops Paul's mission. And we get this part where we read over it real quickly, but it says, and Felix kept him in jail for two years. And so this place where Paul has been going here and talking to these people and doing this and being saved from jail and resur- you know, talking about the resurrection of people and all these kind of things, and it all stops. And Paul sits in jail for two years until another commander comes along. It can be easy to read the Bible sometimes and forget that the the people living the story don't know the end of the story. We read the whole thing in about three minutes, and this is two years of his life. So just for a minute, I'd like for you to imagine with me that you're Paul. It's been five days and it still hurts to breathe from where they stomped on you and kicked you. Things had not gone well for Paul since last week, and now he's in prison. You're in prison, and the cuts on your face are starting to heal, but you can still smell a little bit of blood, and that's because you haven't been able to change your clothes in five days. Five days ago, you were in the temple, a little like this. You're praying for the poor, And worshiping God. And right as you are reciting Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that's when they hit you. And somebody screams, Fellow Israelites, help us. This man is defiling the temple. And then things get hazy for you. Somehow, someway, they drag you out. You don't remember it because they'd already started beating you while you were still in the temple. Through broken breaths, you try to explain your story, but the people, they won't hear you. All they'll say is, rid the earth of him. He isn't fit to live. And it was a Roman soldier 
Commander Lysias, who saved your life. And he saved your life by locking you up in prison. And the only safe place for you now is prison. And even that's not safe. Your nephew comes and he says, hey, there are 40 men who have made it their life's goal to kill you. And again, Commander Lysias saves you. And this time he gives you an, an armed escort of 200 soldiers and takes you to the governor's palace. It's not even safe for you in prison. And it's been a few days, and things have been calm. And in the quiet moments of prayer and at night, you can hear the ocean, and you can smell the salt through that little tinge of blood that you still smell. And you think to yourself, what will today bring? How will this all turn out? Again, from Paul's point of view, he doesn't know how it's going to turn out. Is this what it looks like to preach to Rome, is to get to preach... um, somehow in jail or to Felix or whatever is going to come. See, we only get to experience life as it happens. We only get to experience life one second at a time, one minute at a time, one day at a time. That's what it was like for Paul. I have ideas about how my day will go. I have ideas how this worship service will go. But if you were here last week, you will know sometimes things do not go as planned. We don't know how this will end. And I was wondering if you might be or have ever been in a season of your life that feels like it will go on forever and you don't know how it will end. This last Friday was my daughter's fourth birthday. And I was thinking back on her birthday about how the day she was born, there were, for a few moments, time where my wife's heart rate dropped and the baby's heart rate dropped at the same time. And I was watching the screen and I thought, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It turned out great. Everything is totally fine. But when you live it, you don't know how it's going to turn out. How will this end, God? What will happen? 27 years before this story, the high priest and the elders managed to have Jesus killed by Rome. And that is what they're trying to do for Paul. It's Paul's turn to die. And he is probably asking, is this it, God? How's this going to end? What's going to happen? When Paul uh, finally gets a chance to defend himself, he said, I believe everything that's in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. He says, from Genesis to Malachi, I believe that the story of God is the story that's actually happening in the world. I believe that God is trying to reveal himself to human beings through one family, the family of Abraham. And I have the same hope that people have had for thousands of years. It is that there is a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked So I strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. This is his hope. Because the truth is, he knows this, there is something more to life than we can see. His body will die. He will get sick or he will get beaten to death, maybe shipwrecked, bit by a snake. Lots of things can happen and do happen to Paul. He knows where this is headed. He will die. But it's not the end. He has a hope of a resurrection. He has met the firstborn of the resurrected people, Jesus. And this hope of a resurrection is not new to Paul. It wasn't, Jesus didn't make it up. His followers weren't the first ones. It goes back to Psalm 49, 15 says, But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Isaiah, when he's prophesying, says, But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Hosea, 
I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Paul has a hope. There will be a resurrection. In Romans, which he had written just a few months earlier, he says, You, then, why do you judge your brother and sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. There's a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. We will stand before God and give an account to And there's a lot of mystery here, and there's lots we could say. I just, for us this morning, I want to say just a few things. First, that the wicked would stand before God was really good news to the people of Israel. They lived in a world, and we live in a world, where people who do wrong do not always get the consequences they deserve. Israel has this long history of being enslaved and exiled and mistreated, position and power is misused against them, that God would see their pain and when it is, and everything that is done to them and hold those people responsible for their actions was good news to them. For hundreds of years they were in slavery and the idea that their slave owners wouldn't get away with it forever was good news to them. Evil will not go unpunished. And that's beautiful truth for the oppressed, but as Paul Pastor Paul was saying earlier, it's not great news if you have the power and you misuse it. Felix, when he hears the story, he is afraid. Just for a minute, imagine that there is nothing other than this life that we have now. That the world is in fact a cosmic accident, just totally random. And that all we can do is live now, and then when we die, our carbon atoms and other atoms will return uh, to be a part of this kind of great earth that we're a part of until the sun blows up and we all die. Uh, If that's true, then by all means, our lives should just be about making it as easy as possible. Have as much uh, good food and the best vacations, the most meaningless pleasure and indulgence we can. Pleasure is the goal. Get what you can get. When you got money and power and possession or position, you can use it to your advantage. And that's what Felix does. Taking women that doesn't, that don't belong to him, misusing authority but to find out that one day there's a resurrection, that there is a God and you will stand before him and it matters what you do, of course leaves Felix afraid. Because the truth is there is a resurrection and what people do matters. Paul has, because of the resurrection, made it his aim to have a clear conscience before God and other people. And the best way to summarize that, he has made it his life's goal to love God and love other people. That's what Jesus said was the most important thing, to make your whole life about those two things. And Paul will one day stand before God and and God will ask, how did you do loving me and loving other people? And it's not just true for Felix or Paul, but also us. What we do matters. What you do, whether in public or private, matters. When you give money to a cause, when you foster a child, when you pray for a friend, or you go on a walk and you enjoy creation and you remember God, that matters. If you're a school teacher or a counselor and you pray over the rosters before the students show up that they might be protected from evil and learn and grow to love God and to love math and whatever else you love, like, Lord, that matters. When you say no to, to lust and gossip, when you practice self-control, you will stand before God and those things will be celebrated. Conversely, When I gossip or manipulate 
That is seen by God as well. I love the idea that my good things will be celebrated before God, that he will see the things I would rather have keep hidden is, feels like bad news. What I do, what we do, will be made plain before God. Every selfish ambition, every manipulation will be exposed on the day of resurrection. It means what we do matters. The beautiful and the good and the bad and all of it. It all matters. And I wonder if maybe just for a second you got uncomfortable like me when I was reading this passage. I wonder if you're asking yourself a little bit like uh, some friends and I were asking, if Jesus took my punishment, why does it matter how I live? I believe there's going to be a resurrection, but Jesus is going to be right there with me. Why does it matter? And for Paul and for us, our hope is not just that Jesus took the consequences of our sin. He had something way better in mind, which was to free us from the power of sin. He wanted to save us not just from the consequences of our choices, but from our love of sinning. One of Dr. Peter's favorite hymns, Love the Vine, All Love's Excelling, says just that, Lord, take away the love of sinning. Maybe you know that hymn, Rock of Ages. It has this line, be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. It's, just, it's not just the consequences that we need to be saved from. It's the fact that we actually love to do what is wrong. And Paul's saying, I, I would like to become the kind of person who does not love what is wrong, but rather delights in doing what is good. That was Jesus' goal in his life, death, and resurrection. We have been set free so that we may be free. Now the text ends when Paul is still in prison. He's been there two years, and he's never been found guilty or innocent. Paul does not know how this will turn out. Well, that's not entirely true. You see, he does know how it will turn out. Paul still knows that there is a resurrection. He doesn't know how his court case will end. You probably are in the midst of something or have been in the midst of something. You don't know how it's going to work out, but you do know because there's a resurrection. And it, the end for Paul is the same it is for us. And so whatever your trial, whether it's a health battle, a painful job or no job at all, a family conflict or anxiety where the ending is uncertain, you are not alone. You have a resurrection hope. So like Paul, choose well. Do what's good. Strive to keep your conscience clear before God and other people because there's a resurrection and what you do matters. Please pray with me. Jesus, you have given us life and hope that we could not otherwise have experienced. Would the resurrection be effective? Would the work on the cross be effective in us that you would save us both from our guilt and the consequences of the decisions, but also the power that sin has over us. Encourage us to do what is good. Remind us again that it matters what we do in public and in secret with those we know and those we don't know. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us become the kind of people who live free with your help. In Jesus' name, amen.